This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Lucky you. Hello and welcome back to the show. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Joe Livingston, the cultural staff writer for The New Republic and the most recent recipient of the Nona Balakian Citation for Excellence in Reviewing from the National Book Critics Circle. Joe, welcome. Thank you for bringing yourself and your excellence. I can only guarantee myself, unfortunately, but um, thank you so much for having me. This is a great thrill and an honor. I am thrilled, as you know. Um, I have now gotten to see you and your wonderful face twice this week, the first time being when you brought your perfect new dog over and we just sat on the floor and watched our dogs become best, best friends. It was incredible. My dog is in the process of learning how to be a dog and uh, Danny's dogs are her tutors. I just really want to make it clear. She is such a good dog. (laughs) I love her. She really is the best. She is the goodest girl. Anytime that you want to bring her back over, I could watch them for the rest of my life. No, me too. Me too. Um, but she'll be back. She'll be back. Good. Good. Well, in the spirit of your wonderful, wonderful new dog, uh, I am very much looking forward to making you advise strangers with me for the next <laughs> hour or so, um, in part because I think that you have uh, excellent judgment. Uh, and Ooh. one of the, I think, hallmarks of your excellent judgment is you often reserve your judgment. And so I think one of the things that characterizes at least my end of our friendship is I often hope for, gosh, I'd really like Joe to just sort of like let loose here. And um, I'm finally getting what I want. (laughs) That is an amazing compliment. I think not less that uh, you are like excited about me letting loose, but that you think that I in any way reserve (laughs) or uh, restrain my opinions about anything because I wouldn't say that I'm a particularly judicious declarer of an opinion but I do tend to genuinely think I'm correct at the time. I appreciate that immensely. I think of myself as somebody who is capable of exercising um, restraint but I'm very bad at lining up that restraint to the appropriate moment. So it's much more likely that like on a given day, I'll simply feel like I've been exercising my opinion too much lately. I'll reserve it now. And like I'll have ended up squandering it on something far less important or on far less sturdy ground than if I had thought about each individual case as it came. Um, So it's much more just like if it's a Thursday, I probably already shot my shot too many times on Tuesday and Wednesday. And so it's just time to to hold back. And so I think I could... um, use some art uh, in, in terms of looking at things uh, There's no, at scale. I mean, there is no controlling the fate of one's um, utterances, no matter how judicious they might be once they hit the older public sphere. <laughs> but, now that's uh, the real tragedy of the commons, if I the understand the tragedy of the, of the commons correctly, which I don't. Right. It's impossible to control. It's less like having a well-trained pet, I think. You know, the double of you that goes out into the world than having like a very, very poorly trained pet where, you you know, you're just kind of guessing what might make things better Mm -hmm. or worse. But, um, you know, I think you're doing great. Oh, good, good. I'm so glad. I also think this is a a useful sort of um, lead into our first letter because it has, you know, everything to do with sort of like judging a particular moment to a nicety as well as trying to think about like, how can I speak about others um, if I have information about somebody else, how do I use that to guide whether or not I ask them a follow-up question? Uh, and also, I think is actually one of the first times I've gotten a question about a phenomenon that I am quite familiar with from the inside, but haven't yet bumped into on the outside. So I'm sort of eager to um, like reframe the way that I think about a question like this one. So with all of that being said, I will read this letter. The subject is professional or unapproachable. I'm a straight cis woman in my mid-30s, and I often manage volunteers working with clients in the legal field. One of our volunteers, Taylor, is a trans man in his mid-20s, and when we met, he told me he uses he-him pronouns. Another intern, Tim, who's closer to Taylor's age, has become friends with Taylor outside of work. Tim told me that Taylor actually prefers they-them pronouns and uses they-them when referring to Taylor, both in private and with other volunteers and staff at events. 
Tim also told me that Taylor tells some people to use he, him because it seems like too much hassle to ask people to use a singular they. I still use he, him when talking to or about Taylor since that's what he told me. I've also had to correct other volunteers in the past who have referred to Taylor as she, her. It seems like Taylor sees me as more of a professional mentor than a peer, which is totally fine. And I want to respect that he may want to use different pronouns in a professional setting. However, I also want him to know that I and our organization will use whatever pronouns he prefers and that I have no problem using singular they. Since I know about this preferences that he's expressed through Tim, is this something that I should raise with Taylor? And if so, how can I do it? Beautifully read. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, yeah, I, I am definitely familiar with lots of people who have sort of like public facing pronouns and then pronouns maybe for like close friends or uh, some people who have like uh, certain pronouns that they only want in like highly curated settings. And so they only like share that with a handful of people because it can be difficult to sort of um, direct otherwise. Um, and I, I kind of appreciate, and I also very much don't appreciate Tim's sort of like messy energy of just like, well, here's what Taylor told me. Tim, yeah, I, I think Tim's role in this whole thing is both potentially sweet and pot- potentially nefarious. Um, as you say, I think this is kind of a beautiful question because it it veers so close to um, the obvious. I think personally, I think that that obvious answer is no, you don't need to talk to this person because they have already made the active decision to give you something to work with by yourself. And the greatest luxury I think that you can grant an employee is uh, just not to have to speak to you about something personal, right? Um, that's the that's the thing that uh, everybody else gets. Does it so ridiculous? But I'm just curious. Um, does it change uh, anything about this if we sort of remind ourselves that Taylor is a volunteer and Tim is the intern slash I hope paid intern? Um, so Taylor is not actually like um, banking on a paycheck from the letter writer. I don't think it really makes a difference. You know, I think sure. the flat policy is just easier, and that's the problem. Once you start customizing for every individual incident, right, or problem, or whatever this hiccup is, then the policy starts almost marking people out according to their cases rather than uh, instituting some kind of, like, predictable, workable system that everybody can participate in. Now, (laughs) I'm confused by Tim's role, but the place that um, I feel real sympathy with the letter writer is where she is correcting other people. (laughs) <laughs> about their unthinking use of she, her pronouns for this volunteer because she's not letting multiple realities exist. She's actively misleading people, which is uh, kind of amazing. So I think I see why that makes the situation different for her. Nonetheless, um, I think that uh, the problem here is things left unsaid. And as I said before, I think that the person... The more senior you are, the more that you have to sit with the ambiguities and difficulties of a situation and not leave feeling uh, secure that you did the right thing because that's what it is to be in charge. Yeah. And I think, you know, if anything, um, letter writer, um, presumably given that you and the organization are already, um, you know, doing well on the front of like anyone, volunteer, employee, whatever, who lets everyone know what their pronouns are, like we do that. Um if you want to, you can maybe revisit some of the like onboarding materials that you and your colleagues share with new volunteers. Something that just additionally stresses um, if your pronouns ever change, let us know. We will happily update, you know, uh, our, our frame of reference so that you can simply, you know, make it a little bit clearer up front that you are all collectively, um, you know, ready to do that. Um, and, and that would, I think, potentially address that sort of like underlying anxiety of what if, you know, this particular volunteer just doesn't know that we're really happy to use singular they. And like on that front, you you do not have to like worry about going to Taylor and saying like somebody told me a little bit about you, <laughs> um, which I, I agree is like not the, the move here. Um, but you can also definitely ways to stress to both, you know, Taylor and future volunteers. Like, if anyone uses singular they, great. So will we. So, you know, um, you know, I that think is... that that 
you're absolutely right. And yet that can be this ironic phenomenon whereby like a boss will uh, enact a general rule, which very obviously only applies to one person, <laughs> which like, it's always funny, isn't it? Um, it's that argument of, you know, sometimes made, I think, by people who are perhaps like questioning their gender identity or like not really ready to make pronoun decisions or something. But, you know, that if you are required to declare your uh, pronoun preference at work, you may be being drawn towards making a more affirmative decision than you actually endorse. So uh, again, I'm going to yes. chalk this one up to uh, the incommensurability of language with um, not only the workplace, but experience itself. Mm-hmm. And also say that I think that Tim should feel some responsibility to sort out this mess, having um, what has Tim really done in this situation? Um, it yeah. Uh, yeah. I Before we go there, I, I am glad that you mentioned that because I do really want to stress, I do not mean letter writer that you should, you know, this week send out an all points email <laughs> saying like, by the way, I really want to stress if any of you want to use singular they, uh, I'm so ready um, at, at, at all. I simply meant like if there is already a place in onboarding materials that you hand out to new volunteers to just like add a sentence about let us know if you want. And no more than that, simply letting letting it be known that you welcome it, not saying everyone must let us know their pronouns. Uh, please provide yours by like this afternoon's 4 p.m. pronoun check. Um, definitely, definitely do not do anything that would sort of make it be clear that like this is obviously about a specific incident. I just don't want to like n- mention any names. Um, that would also, I think, not be good for anybody. Yeah, I think the way you framed that is is helpful because – you know, if she does pursue this conversation, she's making it mandatory that they answer her, <laughs> right? Yeah, don't, don't don't make anything mandatory. Yeah, but things are kind of, sorry, mandatory is not the right word, but like implicitly mandatory. That If your boss asks you a direct question, then mm-hmm. it's the kind of, you know, speech environment where you intuitively give what you hope will be the most strategic answer, which is usually to be, you know, like, honest slash guessing what they want to hear. So I don't think it's like a normal expressive space. And for that reason, I don't actually think that like all the social niceties really apply to a workplace. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially not if, uh, you know, Taylor's not communicating them. And also like Tim might be completely wrong. Yeah, I'm I'm glad we're we're moving on to that because I also want to spend a few minutes on like what may or may not be going on with Tim. Um, and, and yeah, I, I just share your kind of general assessment, which is that like letter writer, all other things being equal. And I can understand why that conversation made you feel a little confused or a little unsure or a little worried that maybe you had inadvertently done something to put Taylor off, but you were on solid ground. Taylor told you the pronouns that he wanted you to use for him at work. Um, somebody else, it seems like maybe at best is trying to sort of blur some social and professional lines, but you know. You you have this directly from the, the horse's mouth. It doesn't necessarily need to be the pronouns that make Taylor's heart sing. It's just the pronouns that like Taylor is happy to use at work. Um, and you are abiding by that. And whenever anybody that you know happens to inadvertently misgender Taylor, you correct them using the information that, again, like Taylor gave you directly. You're doing great. I don't believe that there's any reason to go back to Taylor and say like Tim's been saying. That's true. I also think that the letter writer, the letter writer has conferred an expertise on Tim based on their age, which I think is just a little bit, um, doesn't really work like that. I would say (laughs) you could be uh, as advanced in years as you like and still have, uh, you know, and be the most intense uh, language policer of all time, you know, and be the person who, uh, you know, gets aggrieved when people assume the pronouns of of cisgender people, right? Like there's a, that stuff doesn't correlate to age because you're you're right. It's your own personal stage in, in your gender galaxy brain journey. And I think it's wonderful that the letter writer is clearly on a stage of her own. And um, that involves seeing all of these questions where before there may have been certainties. But, I, you know, as we said before, the observation of an ambiguity, uh, unfortunately, doesn't always call for it to be removed or resolved. 
Right. And and in fact, that may have been, again, like, I would, I would be curious to know, like, you know, I, all we know is that Tim has become friends with Taylor outside of work. I have no idea if that means they're, like, tremendously close or they've, like, gone to group drinks once or twice. Um, you know, there's not really, I think, any way to tell based on this letter. Um, and again, I, I'm just, I'm really curious, like, is, it, not that I think this is something the letter writer can find out, but, like, what is prefers... And what is hassled? Like, are those verbatim things that Taylor said? Or is, like, Tim summarizing what uh, Taylor had said, which might have sounded a little bit more like, I tend to use one set of pronouns at work because that's the easiest and most straightforward one that cuts down on hassle. Um, I'm comfortable with they, them in a lot of other settings. Or was it like, I hate he, him. He, him is the worst. I have to do it because it is my only option. And I believe that my boss would yell at me if I asked for they, them. Like, I think maybe the the letter writer is like worrying that um, what what Taylor actually meant in that moment was like I hate this. He him are the manacles that chain me to the rock upon which a, a, an eagle comes down from Mount Olympus every morning to eat my liver. Uh, the and eagle so I would of just, HR asking you to fill out more forms. Yeah, yeah. And I would just say like again, letter writer. I, I would not, in the absence of like anything else that suggests that Taylor is like having a terrible time volunteering with your organization or like is really uncomfortable with you. I I think you can assume that hassle does not in this context necessarily mean like, I think my supervisor would be personally unkind. And actually maybe even remind yourself, I think probably Taylor would view a conversation whereby like his supervisor stopped by and said like, somebody else told me you sometimes prefer they, them. I'm worried that you think I wouldn't like using they, them. I want you to know that I would. Which one do you want? Would fall under the category of the hassle that he's hoping to avoid even if it's the most well-intended thing in the world, you're like, no, no, no. I just want to like communicate how willing and open and flexible I am. Like that can itself be a lot. And just like, I can really appreciate why it wouldn't feel like hassle from you, but it might to him. And so that's where I would really stress. I think on this one, it's just like hassle is hassle, baby. Yeah, I think that you're right in identifying a little seam of potential kind of um, worry about how she herself comes off the letter writer. Sorry, I feel like sometimes you refer to the letter writer in the second person and I do it in the third, but does it matter if do we have to standardize or or can I? I mean, this is actually like such an interesting um, way of like leading up to like, it is weird. Yes, these are unusual pronouns. Um, I, I tend to think that like I have a slightly more proprietary attitude towards the letter writers. So I often refer to them directly as if they like, are in a relationship with me or we are communicating directly and they're just being very, very quiet. Um, And you're right. Usually my guests don't do that. So that is a sort of like odd shift. Right, right. So you're the translator and I'm kind of the consultant, right? That sounds Um, good. So I think that what you you were gesturing towards there is perhaps the idea that the letter writer is worried that she comes off as the kind of person who can't handle they, them, right? Which is, sounds quite similar to an insecurity, (laughs) right? And uh, like perhaps the fact that she sees her identity as marked, you know, as a cis straight woman. And perhaps that's, you know, not even if it's not new, it's not perhaps, you know, the world that people in their mid-30s like myself grew up with. Um, And so, I don't know, she should, I think, take away from this advice bout um, a reassurance like you're doing great everyone's doing great sweeties and um you care and like that's a really good start yeah I mean if anything I would say like everyone's doing great but my eyebrows are a little bit raised at Tim um because I doubt very much that Taylor had said anything like by the way if you could indirectly communicate this to my supervisor I would really appreciate that um so yeah that's true but when you're young sometimes you got to be a little bit traitorous you know yeah my my read there again (laughs) this is speculation but like my read there is tim is doing too much and feels like you know tim feels like i've been given the keys to the kingdom taylor told me the best pronouns um and then like presumably without checking i'm just gonna go kind of spread the word around town and again like still perfectly well-intended you know, none of this like rises to the level of hate crime. Everyone's trying to do as as well as they can um, is like potentially creating the possibility for future hassles by speaking sort of like indiscriminately about Taylor's other pronouns um, when I very much doubt that Taylor has like asked him to do so. So 
probably the letter writer should ask Tim if Taylor requested that they convey this information. What do you reckon? Yeah, I, I think that would maybe be the most that I would advise the letter writer to do is like, I don't, again, I don't know like in what capacity Tim shared this with you. I don't know if this was a one-on-one meeting. I don't know if you often work with Tim. You certainly don't have to. Like you would be absolutely fine, letter writer, and just continuing as you are, doing what you have been doing. That would be great. Not just like good enough. That would be truly great. You know, if you wanted to, and if you work with Tim frequently, you could potentially say, I just want to double check since Taylor has only ever told me um, to use he, him. Did Taylor ask you to share this with me or was this just something you spontaneously wanted to share? And then based on that answer, you know, Tim you might learn maybe something. think about another conversation. But you again, you really don't have to do that either. I think that's all I've got on this one. Do you have any final thoughts? My final thoughts, um, yeah, is that if you do have that conversation, letter writer, um, with Tim, um, you know, it could be a good opportunity for clarifying the fact that if anybody... Uh, needs to understand better what is going on here about language. It's Tim, <laughs> not Taylor. So, I mean, you know, if you really had to get a little bit of managerial action out of this problem, that might be it. Yeah, it might be. We need to move on to our next question. Would you be so good as to read it? I'd love to. This second letter's subject line is Candle in the Wind. I'm a mid-twenties, earnestly religious Jew who's mostly close with secular people. I love Judaism. My friends are supportive and some are spiritually curious themselves. But being one of the few religious people around has brought up a recurring dilemma. People frequently ask me to pray for their loved one's healing or memory or generally keep them in my prayers. I always say I will. And the first few dozen times I really did. But at this rate, I just can't keep up. I don't want to say yes to religious rituals and prayers I can't commit to performing. I've even begun to offer, unprompted, to quote-unquote, keep people in my prayers, a phrase that strikes me as frankly Christian and inauthentic to my prep practice. I know I shouldn't offer if I don't mean it. One solution I found is to talk about keeping people in my heart, which feels more about sentiment than performing specific actions. So the next time someone asks me to light a candle I know I won't light, how do I not commit without being tactless? Saying yes without intention to perform the act or without eventually performing it feels wrong. To be clear, sometimes I absolutely intend to and later do follow through on these requests, but I just can't keep up with all of them. Danny? Yes. I think that you have more um, experience of being the religious one amongst a a more secular culture than I do. So I'll pass this one to you. Well, I appreciate that, although I think it is Pretty important to note that the religious context that I come from is, you know, uh, North American evangelical Christianity, which is very much not Judaism. Um, So I will, you know, with that pretty important um, caveat out of the way, I I did also myself have a handful of thoughts on this subject. Um, You know, I found it a very sweet letter. This seems like a really, really, you know, kind person with a lot of friends who seem to be going through it. Um, And so, you know, I I found it not necessarily the kind of problem that I myself might have at this stage in my life, but um, one that I wanted to treat um, with a little more care than just like, just say you're going to and then don't because they'll never know. Um, Because I can appreciate that that's not the kind of um, kind of uh, framework that this letter writer is looking for. It's not quite deep enough, right? It seems like almost... The way they've articulated the question is getting them to a further question about, you know, about um, how do I make this ritual, you know, or this religious process feel authentic to myself while also pleasing people mm-hmm. or sort of staying connected to others. Yeah. And then the, again, there is that question of like in those moments with these different friends who might be looking for um, like petitionary or intercessory, intercessionary, interceding interceding prayers. Um, You know, you'll also potentially let a writer want to think about what you know of those friends and those particular situations to try to get a read. Is this person looking mostly just for an affirmation in the moment such that, you know, you say you've occasionally tried, I'll keep them in my heart. Um, That might feel uh, slightly more appropriate. 
I can also understand why that's not going to necessarily feel um, targeted or specific. And again, I don't want to sort of get into uh, like wading into like what are the various potential uses of different kinds of prayer. So I don't want to try to like have a hierarchy of like the only thing that counts is like bringing someone food or like performing a physical action and everything else is just noise. So um, I also maybe just want to, I guess, flag the possibility that a number of responses when you are talking to someone who is either grieving a recent death um, or dealing with like a really serious health crisis, either one of their own or one of their loved ones, most responses will feel in some way incomplete um, or, or insufficient to the moment. And that is not necessarily a sign that you are saying or doing the wrong thing so much as, you know, anything short of I can heal you or I can heal your loved one or I can bring your loved one back from the dead is going to feel insufficient because it is. So, um, you know, letter writer, as you are sort of investigating different possible responses, um, don't feel like you will know the right one because everything will just feel fantastic in that moment or will just feel like that was exactly right. You may never get that. That's a beautiful point. Um, that anything will inevitably feel incomplete in the moment. So, there's, there's no point in trying to find a foolproof way of fulfilling the contractual obligations you have drawn up, but, you know, at the uh, coffin's edge with uh, your grieving friend. But um, I wonder, is there a way to collectivize prayers on behalf of people? Um, there certainly are in some religious traditions. Again, I really want to be careful about uh, making any sort of blanket statement about m- what might be available for somebody uh, who's like, you know, actively practicing a, a religious tradition that I'm not a part of. I do have a couple of suggestions along those lines. Um, letter writer, especially I was thinking, Joe, I really appreciated what you said earlier about how this sort of practice is leading to further questions. And again, like great news. There's a rich Jewish tradition of encouraging questions, but getting more questions. Um, so I would encourage the letter writer to potentially ask their rabbi or many rabbis, several rabbis um, for, you know, do you have any thoughts on this subject? Probably they will have, or maybe they'll know of somebody else who have. And that's not to say that you're going to get like a uniform response um, or that this will eventually lead you to the single right like road ahead, but you might find really like thought provoking or interesting um, various uh, thoughts on this subject. Um, and that might be like, again, a specifically like targeted, um, like intra community reaction that might be a little bit more useful than like a former Christian. Yeah, no, I think that that is, um, it's a good point because there is something uh, with theological implications, I think, about this question because this letter writer is a young person in a mostly secular community, sounds like, you know, at least in this context, um, and wants to, and wants their kind of very, uh, you know, kind of authentic individual relationship with their religion to have some meaningful connection to the rest of their world. And it's not really about the other people quote unquote, believing, right, in the magical power of their prayer so much as it's an important thing to the letter writer. And so an expression of that importance will inevitably be valuable to somebody else. Yeah, I mean, I think that that connection between like the individual soul and the community and uh, how that all fits together, that's like pretty difficult stuff. And that's what the kind of thing that it's like a kind of the price of being religious, that <laughs> you have to keep trying to figure this stuff out, right? That there may be an answer, there may be value in the journey towards trying to find one, even if there isn't an answer. And so I think that um, your recommendation is to kind of like turn inward into maybe like some of the commentary tradition um, around the problem of need- having too many people to pray, pray for um, is a wise one. Yeah. And, you know, again, like this may also uh, depend, I don't know, letter writer, if most of the friends, uh, you know, sorry, I feel like it's like that old joke of like Protestant atheist or Catholic atheist, but you say that most of your friends are secular, but I'm also curious, like, are your friends who are mostly secular also from like, you know, Jewish backgrounds or do most of them come from like a secular, but two or three generations ago, it was Protestant Christian traditions because Um, again, some of their expectations in that moment might not match your own tradition. And that's not to say that if any friend comes to you and says like, my mother is dying, 
will you pray for her? That in that moment, I would encourage you to say like, well, let's stop and like discuss our own religious contexts before I can say yes or no. Um, but it might be a possible conversation to have with people who are not necessarily in an immediate crisis, but just so that they can know a little bit more about like what prayer in your particular Jewish context looks like for you so that they're not making assumptions. Because again, like a lot of American Protestant traditions have a very, um, you know, you could say democratic, you could say casual approach to petitionary prayer, which is like at any time of day in sort of any way that feels right to you, you might direct a spontaneous prayer towards God um, using whatever language you feel comfortable with lasting for as short or as long a period of time as you want. Um, And that might be kind of what they're thinking, you know, when they ask that question, it's just like, you know, 30 seconds out of your day, a couple of times, like they might not even necessarily have an idea of what that means. So it might help to share with some of your friends a little bit about like, here's what that kind of prayer looks like for me. I'm, I'm aware there are a handful of like petitionary prayer traditions within different like strains of Judaism that might be relevant. Um, apologies, by the way, if I mispronounce this, this is another one of those words that I've only ever seen written and I've never heard aloud, but like the Mishabarak prayer, there are some traditions of of prayer for the ill and the dying. Again, like I would really advise you to check with your own rabbi as well as other rabbis because I'm not familiar with how often those prayers are like directed for non-Jewish people or people who are not members of your own religious tradition, whether or not that's considered a good idea or not, I don't know. But it, it certainly there there is, you know, there are traditions of such prayers, of like prayers of remembrance. There's the prayer, uh, God full of compassion, that's sometimes recited at funeral services or visiting the graves of relatives. But like, again, I don't know if this is prayers that are encouraged to be used for like people that you're not related to or who aren't part of your tradition. So again, like stamping a huge asterisk on everything I've just said, which is like, Consult some rabbis. Uh, no, totally. And they might have, or maybe some other Jewish listeners will have ideas for a better option than to keep people in by prayers, which I think mm-hmm. is the letter writer knows has some kind of, I don't know, it's a phrase that feels like it's been a little diluted or uh, I don't know, it has a, a kind of like have a nice day ring to it. Yeah, I can feel like, well, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to me? Um, it can, I think, land in different moments in different contexts in a way that can feel really hollow or really insufficient. It can feel maybe like well-meaning, but too vague to really be able to get purchase on. It can feel loving. You know, there's there's a number of different responses someone might have. Yeah. And so if, if any rabbis, by the way, are listening to the show, please write in, let us know some of your thoughts. I would say my maybe last thought there is if you do land on letter writer, any specific Um, like scripts or formats for a prayer um, that is generally having to do with the sick or the dying or the recently deceased, Um, you you might consider beyond the sort of handful of names that you can keep in your mind at one time, you might have something at the end that's sort of like, and for everyone whose individual name I haven't been able to include here, but who I am thinking of in this moment as a collective, as a stand-in for all who are currently suffering, all who are currently navigating loss, all who are currently isolated or in despair, you know, add them, fold them into my prayer. Something that kind of acknowledges the insufficiency of the individual mortal mind to hold collective human suffering in language. Um, and I, th- I think, again, that's that can be a useful element of prayer is acknowledging those massive um, and profound limitations um, and, and seeking out a power that is greater than that um, to hold it. I think that's a beautiful piece of advice. Um, and I I endorse it. Good. There was one good. more thing I was one more thing that I was going to say, which is to congratulate the letter writer on having organically discovered the maximum number of individual people's situations they can hold in their mind at, in one time when, you know, doing their compassion for others bit of existence. Yeah. You can't support all the people who need it, unfortunately. (laughs) There's a limit to how much that you can authentically engage one-on-one with someone is the mark of somebody, I think, with a uh, realistic understanding of their own mental and capacities and marks them out, right, from, I don't know, the televangelist or like the uh, TV presenter who is perhaps kind of staging an equal level of intimacy with everybody who brings their problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's not, it's not possible. 
Yeah, I I am not a person who's given to specific petitionary prayer, but one of the things that I realized I kind of hadn't thought about was like, you know, the supply chain issue is also surely affecting uh, the the you know various pneumatic tubes that characterize the global prayer network, which is to say, like the last two years have been pretty rough. <laughs> I imagine people who do actively pray on behalf of others have been like, I had to come up with like new journals this year or new systems for writing down like all right, I know a lot more sick people this year than I did in 2015. What do I do? Huh, huh. I hadn't thought about there being a physical bureaucracy that to be overwhelmed by um, all of the the data, but I'm sure there is at some point. Well, I think that's as, as many thoughts as I'm going to have today um, that will be useful for that letter so we can turn our, our thoughts um, away from this specific question and um, back more broadly to either, um, you know, how you yourself are cultivating award-winning excellence in book reviews um, and or <laughs> the first letter reminded me of a farm tour anecdote that I'm very eager to share with you. So if any of those sound like a good place to start. Well, I think before we go any further, I think I just want to observe the um, amount of effort that both letter writers uh, feel is warranted <laughs> you know, on their situation on behalf of other people or for the benefit of other people. And, you know, although well-meaningness can sometimes be overwhelming or presumptuous to others, you know, I think it is less common than uh, an apathetic um, stance towards one's common man. So I, I don't know. I think that it, perhaps your show is one of those things that uh, reminds you that people are essentially good or something or that people are trying. They want to be better. Yeah, yeah. I was kind of curious. I think I, I tend to put you in that category of people who um, maybe like me, the sort of goal at work is to do the work and then think as little as possible without becoming like rude or unpleasant um, of the inner lives of one's coworkers as possible. But I actually don't know if that is true of you. That might have just been something. You can't accuse me of not not conceiving of the inner lives of my co-workers. I, love I said story. appropriate boundaries. I didn't <laughs> say you don't think they have inner lives. I just mean, you know, you try not to obsess over the possible implications of those rich inner lives um, insofar as you do not need to uh, try to, to help with them. But I, I apologize. I didn't insult you and call you cold. I mean, I uh, had this conversation in very brief you know, internet form recently with a friend of mine from academia who has um, been sort of sliding into, uh, you know, what the academics call the public humanities, I guess, or they've probably got some new version of it, but media, right? Like uh, things that people read. And so she is coming up against the shit show that is uh, Twitter and, you know, the other major platforms that uh, content is distributed through in our uh, day and age. And she was just wondering, you know, like, how do I make this less awful, this experience? And um, she got, you know, obviously so many uh, pieces of advice from men. <laughs> so much specific, actionable, contradictory, contradictory advice. But it made me realise that um, there's absolutely nothing that you can do about the things that other people say and think. And that seems like such a, um, I mean, I guess it is a child's observation, right? It's, you know, sticks and stones can break your bones, whatever. But I think it's taken me a long time to realise how profoundly and uh, inalienably true it is that the only thing that you can control is how, uh, you know, you can only fortify your own, your your own walled village is what I was about to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think of you as someone who thinks a lot about walled villages. Oh, I do. Absolutely. When we um, used to take the bus home from school on a Friday, I used to talk my best friend Hannah through this imaginary uh, imaginary process of a portcullis closing behind her, keeping all of the stressful things about the week um, in so that she could go out and enjoy the weekend. Um, but yes, I mean, I do think that fortification is a really important idea. You know, you can, you cannot uh, tend the space in between you and other people as if it is, you know, it's just, it's not your property. It's not a place that you can 
cultivate. It's nor is it kind of like a no man's land, right? It's just uh, it's unknowable. Once again, I am reminded of how I really do need to finish learning what the tragedy at the Commons was and enclosure. <laughs> it's, um, this is right in the middle of your wheelhouse, and I should just know what this thing is by now. Uh well, I don't think it's um that complicated, right? You say that, but I remember first reading about Enclosure in uh, the Horrible History series when I was about 13. I fucking loved those. Sorry, can I swear on this podcast? But I I really, really, really love those books. They're fantastic. And I remember thinking like, I'm going to get a firmer grip on this soon. Um, This is going to be important. And it's, you know, 20 years later. And I'm just, I'm like, it's, it's, it's acts of parliament. It's probably something to do with an emerging middle class. Something, it's something. always an emerging middle class, isn't yeah. it? Always an emerging middle class. That's all they ever do is just emerge and emerge and emerge. Um, probably something to do with like the feudal like crop rotation situation. I thought Yomari. it was just that like when a large group are all using the same resource, if it's like disorganized, it will deplete the resource. I feel right? like if you want to ever write like good cultural criticism about the UK, which for a variety of reasons we all want to do these days, you've got to be able to talk about how like enclosure and like the destruction of the commons has led to every ill in modern British society. And I'm like, you're going to have to learn what enclosure exactly was and when exactly it took place before you can ever hope to do that. God, it's such bullshit, you know, like this is if there's... <laughs> Any good reason, I think, to study the past intensively and to learn all the fancy languages that enable you to do that is just to uh, to know for sure and for oneself that um, it doesn't um, matter. Yeah, and you know, it's it's interesting as you were mentioning earlier, you were sort of advising somebody who was considering leaving the academic world, and I tend to think of you as the sort of like you were sort of part of the vanguard because you you know you 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 got your uh, you finished your dissertation and then sort of immediately moved into public facing work. Um, I don't know whether there was ever a point where you were considering trying for an academic job or if you were just like, I'm just going to get this doctorate and then get out of here. Um, but I'm curious if this is something that happens to you now, like frequently since you you got in like early or out early, whichever way you want to look at it. Um, it does happen frequently. People- I talk to people on the phone, you know, about, uh, you know, it obviously depends how old they are, what stage they're in. I think uh, the, but the questions uh, do resonate with each other. You know, for someone in uh, assistant professor, right, they might be trying to decide whether to go for tenure or they, um, or whether to write a commercial book, something like that. And then all the way down to someone trying to decide whether to go to college at all or to go to graduate school. Um, I think that they're all similar questions in a way. And they're... Uh, frequently about um, uncertainty, I think. I think that the academic um, pathway used to have at least some elements of structural, uh, well, structural integrity that allowed it to be a predictable course, Um, you know, providing you put in sufficient effort, didn't bankrupt yourself on the way there with student loans and such. Um, But, you know, that, that... predictable rhythm to the academic career is gone, completely gone, right? Like there's just no jobs. Uh, But I didn't know that when I started my PhD and I started writing for the all in the middle of my PhD. So I don't know what kind of vanguard I could have been a a part of because I think I just started writing as a coping mechanism for getting through my PhD and then I couldn't get any other work. <laughs> yeah, it was sort of just like one thing necessarily followed the other. I'm I'm sorry this doesn't actually um No, no, uh, it's uh it's interesting, but I'm I'm curious what what is there a particular group or time that you think of as the kind of like great dropping out from the uh graduate research context? I don't know. I'm curious. Yeah, I mean I I think I realize like as I say this, I try to think like, did I know a lot of people either working on doctoral programs or in any way like connected to the academic world in like 2013? And I think, no, I was waiting tables and all of my friends were waiting tables. I didn't know anybody who was waiting tables. And also 
um, pursuing a uh, higher education. So I think it's maybe more just like when I came to know people who were either in or leaving academic like life, I was like, oh, wow, this seems to be a whole trend. And uh, I think perhaps the trend was simply that that was when I met everybody. Right, right. It's been going on for a long time, this corrupt practice of uh, <laughs> ripping off the academy for the funding and then leaving immediately. So really I did... Him. <laughs> I did have some, uh, you know, people that I knew um, in my the internships that I did during graduate school because I went to NYU. You know, uh, media is in New York; you can squeeze in a lot. That's true. I met Dana Stevens, who's the film critic at Slate, um, who is a wonderful, wonderful, darling person. And um, who else? Elif Batuman, I met through um, N Plus One, who's also a darling person. And they, to me, were both examples of people who were um, learned, but funny, (laughs) which I didn't know was like a real thing unless you were, you know, a a tweedy old bastard who thought that like his racist jokes were funny. That kind of person hadn't really been modeled for me, slash if they had, it had always been a uh, quite conventional British man, uh, you know, like an A.A. Gill or something. And I wasn't really keen on that. So it was something that really seemed possible in an organic way. But I also, yeah, after I finished my PhD, I spent a couple of years really, really struggling um, working in publishing, teaching, tutoring kids, uptown, downtown, babysitting for cash, you know, just like, working all the time and honestly I just it's just luck that has I don't know I got a job in 2017 so that was two years after I finished and I had kind of raced through the doctorate um so that I didn't you know have visa or money problems and I had freelanced for the new republic in that period and this job opened up and I applied and yeah, I got it to my great surprise. And then ever since that was the beginning of 2017, and I've just kind of been like holding on with my nails, like really dug into the brickwork. <laughs> I'm not sure what uh, three dimensional situation I'm evoking there, uh, sliding down the outside of the ivory tower or something. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I I love my job so much, and I value it as a service you know as a kind of active service to the arts and culture community of humankind right which sounds pompous but you've got to have a reason to go to work every day and you know the more I do it the more I realize that I have really no interest in chucking it in for trying to write books I think that what if you could do more stuff by sticking with like a 13 to 1600 word review format and just doing it over and over and over again until you've done every version of it. And like, what might that reveal rather than trying to pursue my loftier ideas at greater length? Well, it has often uh, enabled me to pursue uh, loftier ideals, not least because I think the last two years I had just realized like almost every time you wrote a book review, I would read it the second it came up. Like I was just smashing on that that click. Um, and then often, um, obviously I I said at first, like, and then I'd buy every book that Joe reviews and you were like, well, I don't always recommend them. Um, (laughs) uh, I had to sort of like walk back my, uh, hyperbole, but, um, often, uh, and, and, and many of the books that I have, um, quickly, uh, sort of like found beloved or, um, really incorporated into like my just sort of like mental infrastructure, I think, especially of like last year when you wrote about the corner that held them. Um, I loved not only the way that you wrote about it, but it also felt like this is the kind of book that I should have read for the first time when I was 12. And then again, every year thereafter, like it's weird that this isn't already a part of who I am as a person. And I have to go correct that um, lapse in judgment right now. Yeah, but it actually kind of already is because you know Barbara Pym really well. So you are already versed in like this tragicomic uh, medievalist <laughs> um, version of kind of like provincial Britain with all of its uh, like the dishwasher and view. its banalities. <laughs> so you're kind of right, like you're the ideal reader to present that to. And it, 
the book is so unusual. I think Sylvia Townsend's mm-hmm. book, The Corner That Held Them, and people, I hope everyone goes and reads it because it's so unusual. But I think often the challenge is to frame it, to frame an unusual work such that a person who would enjoy it will realize that they might enjoy it. <laughs> Does that make sense? It's <laughs> Which is quite difficult, different from just saying it's good. I want to say both that it makes sense and also that half of my mind left my body as soon as you said you're the ideal reader because I was turning it into a poll quote for an imaginary like blurb of me um, <laughs> as if I were like going on tour promoting my existence. And If you were squished into rectangular form. I would put it at the top of the poster, which would just be like the ideal reader. That's me. Well, you are. You're you're a great reader, and a um, a re- you have a referential imagination, which I think is more common. Oh, stop, <laughs> Joe. Thank you so much. I'd like to give you an award for excellence in being a guest on this show. Have a fabulous rest of the day with your wonderful, perfect dog, and give her a thousand scratches on the head for me. I shall. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. There is certainly no guarantee that you you can cultivate relationships with people who will like value and, uh, you know, understand your identity, regardless of where you may be at in terms of transition. But you'll also likely have to interact with a lot of people who don't know you and who are going to make, you know, uh, momentary, brief, almost instantaneous, often unconscious assumptions about uh, your gender And it's not always going to be within your power to do much about it. Um, And so that's also a question that I think is helpful to sort of think about once you let go of the idea of like, when I do X, Y, or Z, I can be confident that I will be getting the, the right response forever. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.